Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, And we are excited today for our unmade Firestarter episode to be joined by friends of the podcast, filmmaker Chelsea Stardust. Hello, Chelsea. Hi. Uh, You might know her as the director of such films as Satanic Panic and All That We Destroy. And she has a uh, new film coming up that maybe she'll tell us about at the end of the episode. Our other guest is the editor-in-chief of Fangoria and the producer of the excellent horror documentary, Horror Noir, Mr. Phil Nobile Jr. Hello, Hello. Phil. Thanks for having me. How's everyone? Uh, and I got your last name right. I know I know it's a pet peeve of yours that people will call you noble. Well, my new pet peeve is when people give themselves credit for pronouncing it right. 
<laughs> no, I'm kidding. Thank you for thank you for taking the time to do that and to <laughs> spreading the word. How do you say it exactly? Nobile, um, like mobile, like how it's spelled. Mobile. Well, yeah. exactly. Okay, right it's like, uh, that uh, eye is invisible. People have face blindness for that eye in there. I swear to God. Yeah, you know, it's even weirder. Um, so my middle name is my mom's maiden name, Senti, S-E-N-T-Y. And when I came out here, you know, Josh Miller is a pretty generic name. And I was initially trying to think of how do I spice that up. And my mom was always like, oh, you could just be Josh Senti. But I grew up witnessing my mom because my mom never changed her last name when she got married and all aunts and uncles and stuff. Everyone wants to add an R in there and say century. It's just like a weird thing with certain names that people yeah. add or subtract or alter things. But anyway, mm. <laughs> back to Firestarter. <laughs> um, well, first off, so Chelsea, uh, the reason that I asked her on for this is, uh, I think I've mentioned on this podcast a few times when we're talking about unmade Stephen King projects. I am in a horror book club that largely reads Stephen King, but also a bunch of other things that we have creatively called the Losers Book Club. Uh, and that book club is run by Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea, why, do you want, want to talk a little bit about the book club? Just since, you know, it does have its own Instagram page that we invite people to, you know, follow and read along with what we're reading. Yes. Losers Book Club LA on Instagram. Um, yeah, I started um, Losers Book Club mainly because I had spent so many years as an assistant. And because during that job, I was reading so many scripts that books completely fell by the wayside. And I real I felt like my brain was dying. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I need to start reading books again. Cause I, I read a ton of books in, in college and growing up. Like the reason I love horror is because of Benicula, goosebumps, scary stories, things like that. So that was sort of gateway horror for me was a lot of literature um, cause I didn't have access to Fangoria when I was growing up. So I wasn't, you know, everyone always references that. Um, but so I, I was just talking to friends like you, Josh, and a couple other people who are currently members and everyone just started talking about reading Stephen King. And I wanted to read more Stephen King. And I went to a friend who's in our book club, Jess Lorton. I said, Hey, I want to get back into Stephen King. What should I read? And cause I had only read Carrie and she said, you should read Desperation. That's the book she suggested. Such an and outsider like, cool. choice. It is. And, but it was a good like litmus test of, of my, uh, I guess, interest in King. And I read that book and I actually loved it and would love to, I love the miniseries, but I'd love to remake the miniseries. So I was like, okay, I want to read more. And then slowly started asking um, different friends that I knew loved King or wanted to read more King or have read a ton of King and it just blossomed from there. And we decided to do, we'd read Stephen King every other month. And then in the months in between, we'd be reading all sorts of different horror um, to keep it fresh. And then we meet once a month and talk about it. We even do like a secret Santa at Christmas. We even did a like year and change of member picks because there's 13 members. So everyone got to pick a book for the group to read. Um, and we've kept it going since 2017, which is kind of crazy to think about. And uh, it's something that I love very much. And we have t-shirts and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a big, big, you know, I'm really happy. And I feel like um, 
my brain is uh is re re this see now i can't speak my brain is <laughs> is rotted your brain yeah no yeah yeah but it's sort of um it helped a lot with uh with that with sort of not feeling like my brain was dying anymore i'm like oh i feel fresh and now i just i sometimes want to read instead of watch a movie and uh of course firestarter was one of our re- very recent reads mm-hmm. It is funny that we try to do Stephen King like every other month, and I still feel like we barely scratched the surface after several so years. <laughs> that that dude's written a lot of books, mm-hmm. and we've also many- done like It and The Stand, and we've done big his big fucking tombs. Like it's kind of crazy to think about. Uh, and the reason I asked Phil, well, Phil, we've been trying to get on the podcast for a while, um, mainly because I, for those who know Phil, he is uh, famous for his love of James Bond which I think some people find surprising as the editor-in-chief of Fangoria, but that doesn't yes. mean he can't only love like one thing. Only being one thing or you're a poser. Um, but pre- I love uh, James Bond too. Now, now that we're recording yeah. all our stuff on Zoom, it's easy. But before when we were doing our James Bond episodes, we were always trying to get Phil live in LA and it was tricky then. But we invited him on for this because what was that the very first issue of the new Fangoria, but had an article about John Carpenter's attempts to make Firestarter. Second Second one. Issue two. Yes. Um, It's an article about, yeah, John Carpenter's attempts to make Firestarter. And uh, it was turned in with just sort of a couple of quotes uh, from from some of the players involved. And I ended up sort of digging a little deeper on it. And that's where I found the Bill Phillips uh, script. and, and, uh, And then we sort of had some fun. We had Gary... Uh, Gary Pullen, Ghoulish Gary, if you guys know him out there, he did some illustrations of like what Carpenter's version might look like. And, and sort of, we, we awesome. sort of fan, we fan cast it a little bit and it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, and it didn't happen. And <clears throat> um, I know, I know for a fact that I sent that script to Ryan Turk once upon a time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like he read the article, he's like, what? And I was like, here's the script. Um, and then Blumhouse for me, Firestarter. <laughs> but, um, but no, I have, I have a deeper connection to the, to the book too. There's the first King book oh, I ever look at read. That. This is my mom's copy. It's very That's old. Awesome. It's falling apart. It's got that dope artwork yeah, I know. on there. I love and, that artwork. And um, shout out to my wife, Amanda, for snatching this off the shelf just real quick. Let me ask you <laughs> to. Um, but I love that book. And, and because it was maybe the, because uh, I'm an older fella. And uh, so first generation King is sort of what I read. I, I mean, Farser was my first one. And then Kuja, he didn't have the catalog that he has now. So it was sort of easy to read all of them in, in, in like a year back then. And, uh, but Firestarter was my first one. So I remember reading it and following the exploits in the New York Post movie section about the, the <laughs> casting announcements. Martin Sheen is playing this character. Like they, for whatever reason, they were just updating us on Firestarter in the back of the New York Post that summer. <laughs> and um, so I was very excited for that movie um, once upon a time. And, uh, and you know, uh, this podcast is not really reviewing uh, movies, but I guess it's no. relevant to this as an adaptation. Uh, what does everyone here think of the first movie, the Drew Barry one, more one for me? I, for me, it's a little hard to separate just because that's one of those movies that was always on like TBS when I was growing up. So it kind of has like surpassed even being a movie to me in some way. So it was interesting rewatching it. And I know Chelsea, you did as well um, after reading the book um, and 
it's a very faithful adaptation, but you also, once you read the book and you realize that all, all the really indelible ideas in the movies are just accurate translations of book plot points. And you're kind of like, yeah, the movies, eh. like, I don't know that it added a lot, but what did you think, Phil, when you finally ended up seeing it as a kid? Oh, I, <clears throat> I think when you're a kid, movies aren't bad. Yeah, a bad exactly. movie when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yep. That was Firestarter. Next. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't, I didn't really have a barometer of, of good or bad when I was a preteen, but, um, I rewatched it recently for the King cast. Cause I was on there, we were doing a commentary and it was a slog, I have to say. Um, and the worst part was we were watching it and commentating on it. So we had the sound off. And so the best part of the movie, the score by Tangerine Dream yeah. was not part of the not, experience. Not present. Yeah. It was kind of a bummer. I think it was pretty well cast. I love, uh, David Keith. Well, you know. we talked to, so um, our book club got together to watch the new one. And then we just kind of had the original one on in the background mm. after that. Uh, and it became a running joke after I revealed everyone. Um, I like, in my mind, it's famous, but maybe it's not King's famous assessment of David Keith, which is that he had dumb eyes, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Poor David. <laughs> um. But, uh, you know, and, and we, don't, we don't need to rag on the new one too much, but uh, I feel like we gained greater appreciation for what David Keith brought to that role after watching. <laughs> that is very one. generous of you to say. Yes. yes. We, uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. I actually <laughs> saw I only saw the the um, original Firestarter recently. I had not. It somehow missed me. Um, and I saw it. But to be honest. Now that you said that, Josh, I'm not sure if I, I actually think I maybe saw the movie before I read the book that yeah. recently. Like, I think I saw it either at the beginning of this year or the end of last year. Um, and, but because I hadn't read the book and I heard a lot of people really beg on that movie. So when I watched it, I actually was like, there's a huge problematic element of that movie. But I will say that um, Drew Barrymore's performance was so incredible and even though I'm I really prefer uh Keith David over David Keith um <laughs> I thought David Keith his even though I'm not wasn't really huge on him as an actor and I as an actor their relationship is so good in that movie and they take such like he takes such good care of her and like just from the first like 30 seconds you buy their relationship as father and daughter um I like a most movies I'm pretty like I love movies I still haven't lost that magic I haven't gotten really jaded about movies but I will say that um I really struggled with the new one that's all I can say about it because I know some <laughs> very close friends that worked on it and um I was I had I it, honestly it made the, the 80s one look pretty fantastic um but there were just some things that you could tell there were some like issues with script and some production issues and this and that um, and relationship with issues within the characters that I, I struggled with, but, um, uh, it does have a John Carpenter score, which is awesome. Uh, but that's all I, I I'll get into on, on the, cause it feels like it totally, like if you read the book and then saw the new movie, they aren't entirely, they are yeah, quite, we'll <laughs> they don't really live together. <laughs> a little bit when we're getting into these scripts, cause I do think it's relevant. What characters and plot details yeah. uh, were selected for these two John Carpenter scripts. Um, also, I just think it's funny. I, I'd love to read an interview with David Keith talking about this because his whole life, people are always like, I like Keith David more. 
But if their names weren't inverted, no one would ever even discuss them in the same <laughs> sentence. They're like two completely different types of actors. But he always, yeah, cursed, yeah, cursed. Uh, and what about you, Steve? Wrapping up, what what was your kind of growing up with the book and or the movie? Uh, didn't read the book as a kid. Um, I remember when the movie was coming out, and yeah, I remember watching it on HBO, and I just thought it was weird that the dad had powers that threw me off and the weird noise he made with the powers. <laughs> yeah, that always kind of bugged me out. But you know what? It was like, you know, I bring it up on the show all the time. If you grew up with HBO, yeah, you know, maybe, I'd like. I you know, the noise it, I just made was actually Chevy Chase's noise. But if you slow it down, it's, yeah. probably, it's the same thing. Uh, but yeah, it was like one of those things. If it was on HBO, I'd watch it because I watch everything on that was on HBO. But I, you know, I always thought it was boring as a kid. And I always like if it was on, I always try to tune in for the end. It didn't have like an impact on me. Like, I guess, Children of the Corn or Maximum Overdrive had on me as a kid. But I listened to the book. When I was walking my dog the last couple of weeks and I didn't want to really listen to it because I heard it wasn't good. And I don't know, that scene happens in the book where he gives like the cab driver the the, the five hundred dollar bill. Yeah. And when it when it gets back to the shop, when the shop's looking at the money, the way all that was described it immediately kind of at that moment on, it won me over. And I, I really liked the book a lot. I was kind of blown away at how gory the the whole farmhouse sequence was and all of that. And. Then I finished the book the day the remake came out and I liked the score of the remake. And I guess I read interviews with the director was trying to be a trilogy. And I kind of wish I didn't read the book before watching the remake so I could have judged it in a different way. But I came right off of it from listening to the (laughs) book and being like, wow, I can really now I get Firestarter. But Uh, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, but I got to say, I liked reading the book. Thank you for recommending this episode because I got to read it. I listened to it. I don't, as people know, I have dyslexia, so I have a hard time reading. So I did enjoy listening to it on my strolls with my dog. And I, yeah, I, I went back, I watched the first half of the original and I was blown away. I was like, holy shit, this is the book. And I was blown away at how close it was to the book. As a kid watching that movie, I guess I wasn't really fully paying attention to the rest of the story. It was always get to those two set pieces, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, a little bit more of an appreciation for the original one. But at the same time, you know, as a kid, it was boring and, I, you know, and not I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'll ever go back to watching the original. But I like David Keith in it, though, a lot. I was blown. I like it when actors. I don't know, man. I love it when actors cry like Eric Roberts. Like when he, he's like the best crying actor. I always love it when he cries. <laughs> he took and my so, thumbs. Yeah. Or best of the best. I think he cries in the first and the second one. But. David Keith, when he was like, ah, I fucking love it. I well, he really David sells the, which was an important part of the book that is like not really in the remake is like how fucked up he gets when he uses his powers. Uh, and always people always think he's like drunk and feel bad for Charlie. Like, oh, her poor, poor girl and mm-hmm. drunk dad she's helping around. It's also funny, again, not to keep comparing things to the remake, but you could tell that they wanted to do a thing, but felt they needed to zig where the original movie zagged. For, so for those who haven't seen the original movie, and it's very funny when you're watching it, but then when you watch the remake, you realize how weirdly effective it still was is when David Keith uses his powers, he like clutches the hair at the side of his head to like concentrate. And when Zac Efron uses his powers in the new one, he does this like 
kind of jock bro thing where he like cracks his neck sideways like he was you know getting ready to step out on the football field or something Y'all, it's something it's something uh, like yeah. limbering up or yeah, i haven't seen the new one yet sadly but oh, um, yeah it's, it's like text what, me when you do oh yeah it's, it's, it's like it's like what gary oldman does in the professional and he takes those pills the, 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 i'm going batshit pills and he practices um, it yeah it's kind of like that but uh, yeah, l- let's launch into this, Steve, if you want to kick us off with some relevant backstory. Yeah. Um, and and uh, yeah, as we go along, Phil, you know, he talked to more recent people. If he wants to chime in, it's all good. But uh, yeah, I mean, up to this point, I guess to give the audience, um, bring the audience up, um, we're going to start. I'm going to start in 1980. But before 1980, the books that have come out already by King are Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining. The Stand, The Night Shift Collection, The Dead Zone. It was in 79. So that kind of brings us up to 1980. And he's Stephen King is 32 years old at this point. And at the end of the year, he'll be 32. (laughs) I've accomplished nothing. (laughs) Oh, man. I, I hear you. Trust me, <laughs> he'll have and at by the end of 1982, 1980, I read, he said he'll have a total of 22 million copies of six novels and one collection of short stories in print. And also at this time, Creepshow and The Stand have been announced as movies. And so May 1980, May 6th, um, the film rights to Firestarter are bought by an Egyptian producer named Dadi Fade. And he outbid two major studios and purchased the rights for a million dollars in 1980, which is pretty crazy. He read the galley sheets over the weekend and bid on it first thing Monday morning. And um, yeah, and he would actually go on to make uh, produce like Breaking Glass, Chariots of Fire, both FX movies. Uh, oh, yeah. FX movies. <laughs> yes. And then, the princess. <laughs> what? Yeah. He's the guy. He was the guy Princess Diana was dating when they died in a car wreck. Oh shit! Oh, that's him. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god! Wow, I hadn't. I didn't realize. Wow, check that out. Wait, how mm-hmm. do you say his name? I I thought it was Dodi Fayed, but I'm not. You're probably right. right. Yeah. Dyslexia yeah, Steve will say it wrong. <laughs> so don't worry about it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I will destroy it. Sorry for that spoiler, man. Sorry. <laughs> that's no, all good. All right. Honestly, All right. The and thing is, I didn't know he produced this movie. No, he didn't. <laughs> or I didn't know he had the rights. <laughs> yeah. he, was, he was the first person to get the rights. OK, which is pretty wild. And then I, I mean, yeah. And then, yeah, went on to like make a freaking Oscar winner. And then the FX movies. It's pretty wild. Um, I like the FX movies anyway. And then The Shining is released in May 1980. So people know theatrically. And um yeah, 1980. Um, also, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm peppering in a couple other things with Stephen yeah, King, just, so, just so people away. can know how like in, how wild it was for him at this time. And then in July 1980, Children of Corn has been optioned to be a movie also. OK, August 1980, Firestarter book comes out and it becomes like number one in fiction. And then at that point, how'd you say his name? Doty? Yeah, I believe it's Doty Fayed. Dodi yeah. Fayed then relinquishes the rights to Dino De Laurentiis, who then sold it to Universal. That makes it I, sound like Dino had him hung out a window or something. Yeah, that, 
I, like, I give took, me fire starter. Maybe <laughs> I, I took that wording from an article because there was another article that had another stranger word. And then I had to look it all up. And so I'm like, how did they work this deal out? I couldn't, I couldn't really <laughs> figure it out. You know, it's almost like it, man. You probably maybe he did <laughs> pull the vanilla ice should night thing. Um, yeah. December 1980 Dead Zone goes into production also to be directed by Sidney Pollack. And uh, so right now we're in 1981 um, and we're going to move to June 1981. The stand is in the third draft stage. King is scripting. I should say, uh, I think it's issue eight of Fangoria. Steve and I have a whole article about the many, many attempts to make the stand into a movie by George Romero and others. Hell of a read. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and at, at this point, it's crazy to think all these movies of his are in production, you know, and I wonder what ones I don't even know about or we don't know about were actually going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, then November 1981, um, according to an article that came out later in Starlog, uh, Bill Lancaster at this point is halfway finished adapting Firestarter and for John Carpenter to direct. And John Carpenter hasn't officially doesn't officially get announced with the project until December 1981. He's officially announced that he's going to direct Firestarter for Universal. And then also in November 81, Dean Kundi is attached to be the DP, the DP for Firestarter. And, and at that point, November was like, it was the, the thing was originally supposed to open on July 30th. And so they were hoping that the pre-production was going to start immediately after the thing opens. And and they were also aiming for a summer 1983 release. And that will bring us to 1982 to the first draft by Bill Lancaster, March 1st, 1982. I guess he, the draft is complete. And I should say, uh, Bill Lancaster, I guess, most famous for writing The Bad News Bears and John Carpenter's Thing, less famous for the fact that he was Burt Lancaster's son. <laughs> uh, I feel most people don't know. But um, since I feel like Firestart is often treated as kind of a, a great what if, if Carpenter had gotten to do it, what his career would have been like. And I guess maybe Bill Lancaster didn't need a ton of money being the son of Burt Lancaster. But I think there's a big what if there as well, because he didn't really, despite having done the Bad News Bears, which was a huge hit when it came out and spawned at least one sequel, if not two, I don't remember. I know they go to Japan at some point. Um, And if the thing had also been a hit and this had come out, I wonder if he would have kept writing movies. seems like he would at least have done some more John Carpenter movies, but his career kind of just stopped here for the most part. Um, But yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, But yeah, so this script, Steve, and now I forget if you already said it was March, 1982. Um, And actually Chelsea, I think, We've kind of gotten into a little bit, but maybe do you want to just summarize the book a little bit uh, for our listeners who either have never read it or it's been a while or haven't seen any of the movies? I mean, maybe they haven't even they stopped listening by now, but (laughs) yeah, so um, I will try to summarize this as uh, as quickly as I can. (laughs) Um, I typed it. There's the thing is when when I read this book is. there's a there's a lot going on but it's uh, it's very it's very accessible so it's very easy to to follow what's going on um but this is for anyone that 
hasn't seen the movies, hasn't read the book to give you an idea <laughs> of what's going on. And um, I read the book, rewatched the original movie, saw the new movie and read both of these screenplays. So at the end of this summary, Phil, if you could do a quick fact check in your head and if I'm flipping anything, <laughs> anything, please let me know. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Firestarter tells the story of two young hippies named Andy McGee and Vicki Tomlinson who volunteer to be test subjects for an experimental hallucinogen known as Lot 6. Little do they know that they are being injected with a mind-altering drug. Later, it's revealed that the experiment is being run by DSI, a.k.a. The Shop, which is a science branch of the CIA. After their experiment, uh, after their experience, Andy and Vicky notice they have some unusual powers. Andy is able to push someone to get what he wants, and Vicky has some telekinesis. The two of them fall in love and have a child, uh, Charlie McGee, Charlene, Charlie McGee. And that <laughs> child is born with pyrokinesis. Dun, While Vicky, dun dun dun. <laughs> While Vicky, Andy, and Charlie think they're living somewhat normal lives, it is revealed that they are being watched closely by the shop. Many of the test subjects they were with have died or committed suicide. So Andy and Vicky and their newborn of a, are of interest to them. Cut to a few years later, Charlie is about eight years old, and the shop wants her. They kill Vicky and take Charlie. Sorry, just brushing over the fact that Vicky, one of <laughs> yeah. our main characters, is killed. Um, and they take Charlie, but Andy is only a few steps behind them and is able to rescue Charlie from their clutches. Andy and Charlie are now fugitives from the, from the law, quote unquote, and hitchhike to find a place to hide out and lay low. While hitchhiking, they are picked up by Irv Manders, who takes them to his place to feed them and let them rest. However, the shop is able to track them down. And during a showdown, the shop is able to see the full breadth of Charlie's powers, which scares the shit out of them. The shop decides to enlist the help of John Rainbird, who they think has the best set of skills to track down Andy and Charlie and bring them in. Andy and Charlie make it to make it to a cabin that belonged to Vicky's family and decided to stay and decide to stay for the winter. Andy decides they should con contact the major news outlets to tell their stories, but his letters are intercepted by the shop who have been <laughs> watching them all along. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, Shortly after that, Charlie and Andy are captured by the shop and taken to DSI headquarters. They are kept apart. The shop wants to experiment on Charlie, even though she resists playing their games. They decide to have John Rainbird befriend Charlie and trick her into doing the tests when she hasn't met him or hasn't seen him, doesn't know what he looks like. And in return, John asks the shop to have Charlie after they're done with her because he wants to see her die. He wants to see the light leave her eyes because it gives him a fucked up satisfaction. She falls for John's tricks and his kindness, thinks he's a friend and agrees to do the tests. Then the shop gets another glimpse at her powers and what they might eventually become and decide she should be terminated. Meanwhile, Andy, who's under sedation, stops taking his pills to fool the shop, which works. And he's able to formulate a plan to get himself and Charlie out of there. He's able to slip her a note to warn her about John Rainbird and the plan to escape. Everything starts to fall into place until John realizes what Andy has done, pushed the shop employees to convince them to let him and Charlie go. There's a huge showdown. Andy is killed. Charlie destroys John and the shop, incinerating everyone and everything. And she manages to escape and takes her story to Rolling Stone. The end. <laughs> the, the most Stephen Kingy detail from the book that yeah. <laughs> breaks the story at Rolling Stone, known for its. <laughs> 
I don't even know. The only, um, the, the only outlet, uh, 30, 30 something year old Stephen King would trust, right? Yep. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, thank you, Chelsea. Yes. That was a good break. Though. Um, and so <laughs> getting into this, so one thing that I think is interesting about the book in terms of getting adapted to a movie and it's interesting to see how these different scripts and the two movies that got made did it is, you know, I think part of why King's books are naturally lend themselves to movies so well is that he has kind of a movie brain, even though he's obviously very much a novelist with all his beloved tangents and subplots. But the Firestar book is actually, it's kind of structured like a movie because it begins just with a bang with Andy and Charlie already on the run. And all the setup stuff is told in flashbacks throughout the movie just to kind of keep the pacing up. And I think it's interesting that both of the Carpenter scripts, Carpenter version scripts we got by Bill Lancaster and Phillips um, tell it all chronologically. So like, I think I wrote down here, we don't even get to Charlie being born until page 25 (laughs) of Mm -hmm. Bill Lancaster's script. So this kind of has, you know, it's like the original Superman where we don't even get Christopher Reeves until like the 40 minute mark. Um, And even though I guess also kind of talking about this out of order, but I think and Chelsea, I'm sure you would agree and Phil you as well. The, the real radical omission from both of these Carpenter scripts is that they don't have John Rainbird at all, right. yeah. who I think is by far the most interesting character in the book. He's super cool. Um, he's also cool in the movie that got made, except for the fact that it's George C. Scott playing a character who in the book at least is heavily identified as half native American. I don't quite remember in the movie if they actually say that out loud other than his no, name. But you call him Rainbird. Yeah, exactly. Sake. Like, yeah. What, what do we think? Is that an Irish name? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. It's spelled R A Y N E. Yeah. It's, yeah. um, it's part of like a law, a law office. Uh, and, and just as a footnote, played by Malcolm McDowell in the TV movie sequel. Oh, you know, I, I met, you know, I'm actually mad that I didn't watch because that. Because George yeah, Scott wasn't non-native too. enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's make him Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, um, that's the most problematic part of the, the original movie, which they did correct in the correct, quote unquote, in the new film, the, the new adaptation. Even but, though I also have many issues with how they uh, used yes. Rainbird in that. <laughs> But is there a sexual tension between them in the re in the rekindled one? I never watched it. Um, uh, I don't remember. It, it was um, it, 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, I know. They just put it on Peacock. So I just been it keeps popping oh, up. And I'm like, true. Oh, I'm like, oh, wait, in the Drew Barrymore one. You're no, asking? the new. Oh, no, the rekindled. Uh, rekindled. The one. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Firestar rekindled. But I thought we'll it was get- interesting that they did choose. They changed that role to Helen Rav, a woman who's like in her thirties to eventually she does everything like Rainbird does in the book. So she becomes the one who like tries to befriend Charlie. Yeah. And I just thought that was such an interesting change. Um, I mean, it's one of, of those me, things. Oh, sorry. Go on. But I was just gonna say, part of me wonders if they're like, oh, this character is going to connect with this kid and we want it to be a woman is part of like what it felt like, even though she has such a strong relationship with her father. Um, but I thought that was a very interesting change. And also she's such a prominent character, almost like how Cap Hollister, who's the head of the shop, is such a he's a very prominent character in the book, but they but he takes such a back seat, I thought, in both the screenplays. Yeah. And it's um 
so yeah, so the first 25 pages, we began in 1967 on a camp college campus in San Francisco. The script very much wants us to know that white rabbit uh, is playing <laughs> on the soundtrack. Love a, love a script level needle drop. I and, they're like, and this song is playing. Uh, is, yeah. And we're getting a montage of all these different uh, college students signing up for this, uh, you know, funny because thinking back, I'm like, yeah, I remember they would do that on college campus. We're like, come let us test this drug on you. Mm-hmm. We'll give you a hundred dollars. I never quite went for it, um, but that's what they're doing. And we're seeing Andy and Vicky and a bunch of other people for that. And so Dr. Rob is an interesting character, especially just thinking of it as an at- adapting because she's not only fills the void of John Rainbird, but she's also what the character of Dr. or Professor Wanless from the novel, who is the doctor who was in charge of the shop study of lot six, the drug that they're giving everyone. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, it, it's also funny because I feel like that's a very 2022 change of like, there's not enough women in this script. Let's make the doctor a woman. It's actually kind of interesting to see it in a script this old. Yeah, Mark, I mean, Mark, I'm sorry, go Phil. Well, no, I just wanted to follow up on the on the Rob thing because it it wasn't you know caveman times. Carpenter certainly, except for the thing, notably was was casting women in significant roles yeah. over and over again. Um, and I when it only occurred to me when Chelsea was saying it, but like it almost makes sense that if you're going to try to like get the trust of a kid whose mother had died, you you might send yeah. a woman in there. Mm-hmm. It's 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 you know except for accepting the fact that Rainberg is such an interesting character. That's these aren't like really terrible suggestions to, no, to put it, in the script. And, totally. and that's and that's kind of where I was getting at is it's actually a good adaptation choice if mm. the idea is we need to simplify this and streamline, which often is exactly what you're trying to do for a movie. It is just the problem that John Rainbird is such an interesting character. I mean, also part of what's so interesting about him is how fucked up his whole psychology is which they do get into with the George C. Scott's character of just the fact that he wants to befriend Charlie so that he his deal he makes with Cap is that he'll capture her and help like unlock her powers so they can study her. And what he gets out of it is when she's done, he gets to murder her basically so he can like maybe absorb her power. But I like that it's not even that it's not even that like stupid and superstitious that he's like, I want to absorb her power. It's, it's very Stephen King. Like it's always, you can always tell when King, which characters he's finds most interesting because inevitably they become the most interesting is he really just liked getting into this bizarre psychology of this fucking psycho. And it's almost like a teeny tiny precursor to Dr. Sleep. Like it's a teeny, like, yeah. like he, that could be, Rainbow could be a Dr. Sleep character. He could be part of like Crow Daddy sure. and like those guys. Um, and so, you know, it's simplified, but especially in the, it switches it up a little bit in the Bill Phillips draft, which we'll get to obviously when we're done talking about this. Um, my one problem with what ultimately happens with Dr. Rob is that it was so interesting and it, it never quite came off as good in the, George C. Scott movie as it did in the book, but it's so interesting 
reading through Rainbird's plan to befriend Charlie and how well it works and just how, you know, it's got that kind of talented Mr. Ripley vibe where even though mm. this person's awful, you kind of get sucked into just seeing someone so competently execute their evil plan. And with Dr. Rob in this one, it, it feels more just like she just kind of ends up befriending Charlie and it's not even much of like a secret to it. They add a bit of that in the Phillips one. This is more just like she's there. Yeah. And I, you know, Charlie, yeah, probably because she's scared and her mom's dead just kind of allows Dr. Rob to befriend her. It's actually not even that duplicitous. Um, And it is interesting though, that it takes so long to get up to the present day and it's all, it, it's they're not really adding anything that isn't in the book. We're seeing like Andy goes back to where the tests were and it's all kind of cleaned up, but he finds like some blood on like a, a pull down screen. I think that like the cleanup crew had missed and, you know, other people had died during the test. One of them like throws themselves off a building is kind of the big dramatic. Oh, that, that's another thing too, to think about that. This was Carpenter's planned movie after the thing. And Steve, I don't know if you have, any information on this i did wonder if he was planning to incorporate some rob botine effects because they get very explicit in describing some of the insane gore that we yeah. have seeing here and one of them was this blonde grad student who'd been part of the lot six test jumping off and not even that tall building but doing it like head first and his head just like watermeloning <laughs> on the ground um but yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, Cap in this is described as an elderly gentleman. I feel like he's not, they didn't really quite try to keep him as the character he was from the book. I mean, which is fine. They're, yeah. they're leaning on Dr. Rob as our, our kind of combining all the interesting attributes. This, uh, once we get to the present and Charlie's like a kid, we see her as like a baby and then they kind of just skip through that until she gets up to uh, like six or seven, the age she is in the, the books. They also keep a character, Quincy, who was one of Andy's old friends from yeah. college, is like a minor character in this version and gets expanded upon in the Phillips one. Uh, this also, yeah, I, I don't want to bag on the, the remake too much, but they also, I feel like there's so many missed opportunities from the remake to do some of the cool Andy stuff where he's like yes. using his powers to just wreck these shop guys when they first try to abduct Charlie telling one, you know, that gun's much too hot to hold. And the guy's like, ah, you're blind. And this guy just rolling around on the ground for a whole scene, screaming about how he can't see. <laughs> and actually my favorite detail from the book that then they keep here too, is that there's like a young couple eating like a picnic yes. in this park, witnessing all this and horrified, but he just like walks up to this and he's just like, none of this was important. And the guy's like, fine. Oh, God, <laughs> they just go back to eating. Um, yeah. And then this, this also has a lot of, I, I think, which is funny because I think it's something one, I can imagine someone finding it boring in the novel, but it was actually some of the stuff I liked the most is how realistically mundane the shop is. Cause I feel like they kind of do this in the remake and most movies do it. So it's not the fault of the remake. When we see like these clandestine government organizations, they're always like so sophisticated and they're so good at covering up everything. Uh, when we know how the government actually works, it's still a bureaucracy <laughs> and they're always kind of borderline incompetent at the same level that they are duplicitous and evil. 
Uh, and all th- this has all the characters like Norville Bates and Ralph Baxter and OJ and John Mayo, who throughout the book, we're just seeing them on this journey of trying to hunt them down, being kind of equal parts good at their job and bad at their job and kind of just petty idiots who bitch about things like any co-workers do. And I, to me, I feel, I feel like that makes the shot feel so much more evil is how realistically mundane the organization is and that they're worried about getting financing for things uh, where most of these movies, evil government agencies have like bottomless resources to do the most impossible cover-ups imaginable. <laughs> um, and yeah, Chelsea, feel me. Do you have any thoughts about just kind of the structure of these scripts? Yeah, I think, you know, it was interesting to see because I wasn't I wasn't totally paying attention because I wanted to kind of read them in order of which came first. But I, I read the the Bill Lancaster one first. Um, and it was interesting because I realized, you know, they're p- combining some characters with with Helen, which I thought was a smart move and actually didn't make me miss like I, I didn't miss um uh, is it Wayneless? Wayneless? Um, I didn't really miss that character when they wrapped. I actually kind of completely forgot about yeah. the character and the fact when they they did such a good job um, putting those characters together. And but I also noticed there were so many um, characters from the shop, and they had so kind of little to do. Where I was like, ah, eh, those could also be characters that for sake of this you could kind of roll into one but instead of four of them them, two of them uh, yeah because in the and in the book we're learning more about those characters and we know which ones are partners we know like we but again you have to for the movie you can't do all of that um you have to kind of move it along um and uh i also this is something that we have talked about uh that we were wondering if it would happen with the new movie is the snakes (laughs) <laughs> and so there yeah. is one mention of the snakes, snakes. basically when Andy pushes um, Cap Hollister, uh, basically sometimes what can happen is when Andy pushes someone, it, it can trigger something in their brain um, that makes them kind of obsessive about something. And yeah, so I think Cap King describes snakes. it as kind of like <laughs> something ping ponging out of control yeah. in their head <laughs> and the memories cause it. And it's funny because this is a perfect thing where, if I was a exec on this movie, I would have just told them to take this out. Uh, I suppose this was 1982. Now it's sort of pointlessly problematic without having any of the interesting backstory that like explained why it was happening. But Dr. Pinchot, who's like another one of the scientists at the shop who Andy uh, ping pongs before it happens to cap. Uh, he had a whole thing in the novel where he goes home sick because Andy tells mm-hmm. him that he's like sick and he's like slowly going insane and starts like wearing women's clothing, which they put in this script, but we don't really, none of the ping pongs explained. It's just Dr. Rob goes to see Dr. Pinchot. And then when she arrives, he's just like walking around outside wearing a dress. It's kind of here. It just comes off purely (laughs) as like gay panic pointlessness. But uh, uh, in the book, it's actually kind of interesting. And I think it's maybe too complicated to try to explain in mm-hmm. a movie sense. I was speaking of the pushing, uh, Steve, since you just listened to the audiobook and maybe Phil and Chelsea, you remember better. I mean, we just read the book in book club a couple months ago, but I've already forgotten. Um, Cause it, in the script, they have the detail 
that after because one of the I feel the kind of iconic scenes from the book and the original movie is when they try to get a cabbie to drive him to the airport and the cabbie's like that's way too far away and mm-hmm. he gives him a dollar bill but tells him it's a five hundred dollar bill mm-hmm. and the cabbie gets all excited and he's like anywhere you want um and then Steve, you mentioned, I think before we started recording the scene where the shop is analyzing the bill and in the script, they have it where everyone sees it as a $500 bill. Is that what it was in the book? Yeah, in well, the... I'm sorry, go. You, no, no, you no, no. explain it better. My, basically, I think it was starting, the effect was starting to fade. So some people still saw it as a 500 bill, but then some people didn't. But also the, he had the president wrong that was on the bill. Yeah. So they're like, even though we know the president's wrong, we're still seeing it. And they're, they were talking about how long it lasts, which I think is supposed to kind of say maybe how long the push can last. But the fact that it's on like physical, something physical, yeah, it's, not I, have, it's not a person. I'd forgotten that that was, mm-hmm. I was thinking that that was added for the script. And so, it makes yeah. sense that it was because I, I remember, and correct me, you guys read it more recently than I did, but in the book, wasn't there some sort of uh, rules or, you know, the world building of it that, the smarter you were, the easier it was to push you. Like you couldn't yeah. do it to a dog or something like that. Yeah. But in the mm-hmm. and then but then, who is he directing his push to? If if strangers, if he didn't interact with, are seeing this on the bill? Yeah, that's why I thought it was added for the script because to me that doesn't really make that much sense. It makes sense that you're altering somebody's mind and their perception. Yeah. But then- <clears throat> and as we as we know in the in the movies, they kind of throw that rule out the window, and he's like pushing you know payphones and stuff. So. That, that he could work it on inanimate objects seems weird that that would be in the book. Because I think it's more of like, um, be, I think what it is, is it's sort of the residual is that I think it's showing on the dollar bill because they were told he said this was a $500 bill because a lot of it is about, because the payphones is everything Charlie's doing. So she's she's initiating that. The heat, oh, right, right, right. The heat. Mm-hmm. But, but no, you bring a good point of like, they, there is also a weird thing in the new movie, which this also talks about the push where they're wearing contacts. And also I think in the script in Bill Phillips script, there's talk of goggles, I think. And um, that didn't make any sense to me because it doesn't ha- it didn't have to do with him looking into your eyes. It has to do with him getting into your brain. So they made such a thing about the right. eyes. And I was like, but it's him like getting into your brain it has nothing to do with him like looking into your soul which i thought was kind of a weird yeah uh thing but i get it when they're like trying to make that connection for the audience or whatever but well, in, in uh the inanimate tip what i'm mis- misremembering was that he was changing the channel with his push which was <laughs> in, in the 84 film which oh. i was like <laughs> yes and yes, he's giving himself right. a nosebleed I'm like just get the remote are you doing it yeah <laughs> totally get the remote but yeah the residual like seeing because the dollar bill that that is in the book Um, and the residual of them seeing it too. And it was starting to fade, but I think the big giveaway was they're like, we know this president on this bill isn't right. And so we're still seeing it, but it's the power of like suggestion. They're like, Mm. he told the cabbie, this was a $500 bill. It was almost like whatever was left on that bill, like from the cabbie seeing it. I don't know how to properly explain that, Mm. but just seeing how the, the, it was starting to, to fade. But yeah, there was the rules that Phil mentioned of it's like certain, person of a certain intelligence is easier to push than others yeah uh yeah and then we have our whole sequence uh where they're with uh irv and norma manders which are two like kindly elderly people who take them in uh it's just funny like how um tropes like this like if you guys saw logan you know the old man wolverine movie and i remember when i saw that movie the whole section where they're taken in by the kindly family and then the you know evil government people show up and 
you know, the people are kind of unfairly punished for helping Logan and the little girl. And I was like, oh, it's like Firestarter. Um, Because that's one of the, the big iconic scenes from the book is the bad guys show up fully underestimating what Charlie can do. And she majorly fucks shit up. Uh, here's some of the stuff where I wonder if this would have been maybe some Rob Bottin effects. Uh, there's a character named Stein. It's Stein's clothes disintegrate. His skin expands like a giant member, membranous bubble. He turns into a total body blister. He pops, spewing body fluids like a broken water balloon. A dehydrated skeleton remains. I love uh, it. There's also details of like a chicken running around and the chicken just explodes, which yep. almost seems like a Monty Python joke. <laughs> um, the big change here from the book uh, and the Drew Barrymore movie is that Irv Manders dies and Norm Manders is actually like screaming at Charlie about how it's all her fault. Where in the book, he just gets injured in those characters. Because they come live back. in the book. Yeah. Yeah, because they come back again at the end of the book. They Charlie goes back to them after she leaves the devastated shop. Um, but it, it, this, these scripts are very faithful to the book as far as the general structure. Cause then there's the whole yeah. section, which I think is probably the exact parts that Steve's referring to being bored in the Drew Barrymore movie is where Andy and Charlie go to a, a secluded cabin and just kind of like hang out there and all is well, basically. Um, and they're just living a nice domestic life, but like kind of, we had the movie on at book club the other night. It was definitely like, yeah nothing's happening here as far as like <laughs> pacing this is they're just hanging out uh they also <laughs> include a scene in this movie that was one of those very funny thing about king is king loves his like tangents which i guess if you don't love like king or the very things you hate about his books but they're often my favorite is one of my favorite parts of the book for whatever reason i just like the way it was written is when it's oj i think and one of the other shop assholes are trying to get the local postman to give them his mail because they know that that andy's posted a letter which was meant to go to like the press or whatever and this like local postman is so up in arms like you don't have the right to do that this is federal property and they just get in this big fucking pissing contest with this local postman and this script had that in there which i thought was fun Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was very true to the book um, yeah, we I, get love, to- I like that. I actually do like that scene a lot in the book. And then he goes back and sees his boss and has to. <laughs> and his boss is just like, don't worry about it. And yeah, I was shocked in the remake how they just I was all kind of hyped for it in the remake. And they just like kill him, kill the postman. And I was like kind of shocked by that. <laughs> uh, well, the remake is uh, not the remake. I mean, oh. the, uh, the the Barrymore one. Yeah. Oh, oh. I, don't, I don't think the postman's in the remake. Actually. No, no. I mean, no. No. Yeah, no, he's not. The one thing I can say about <laughs> the remake objectively, there's nothing to do with whether or not one likes the movie. It is not a good adaptation of the novel yeah. Firestarter. Like it is extremely, it, maybe you wouldn't. extremely untrue to it and has that kind of feeling where it's almost like they didn't like the novel and we're just like, we got to change all this up. I don't know what went into adapting that, but uh, yeah. we finally get to the shop um, pretty late in the script which is maybe not a bad idea because I do think that's one of the, the things that people who found the Drew Barrymore movie boring is part of what they find boring about it is that after all this cabin stuff and then we get to the shop and there's kind of just these long scenes of George C. Scott befriending Drew Barrymore and nothing particularly exciting is happening 
until we get to the parts where she's finally testing out her powers. Um, also, I guess for those who don't know, uh, uh, Stranger Things is admittedly, I mean, the, the Duffer <laughs> brothers are very open about the fact that the show is largely kind of an homage slash ripoff of uh, both the movie and the novel Firestarter as far as so a lot of this stuff, I think, to modern audiences. And I'm sure the remake had to kind of grapple with that. You have that problem of like if you do an if you do an accurate adaptation now, younger people might just be like, this is just like Stranger Things. Um, but uh, I like that in this we have Necromancer, the horse, which yeah. is like a big part of the novel is. Uh, that's part of how they like woo Charlie is letting her hang out with these horses. One of the horses has the creepy name of Necromancer. And again, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Chelsea, since you also just read it. I feel like in this draft, which differs from the Bill Phillips draft, the, Dr. Rob's relationship with Charlie is not duplicitous. She's not like pretending to be a janitor. Charlie knows that she's a doctor. They just have a friendly relationship. Yeah. Um, I, I just when I was like reading this script, I made it I, I wrote that Rob as friend looks like she doesn't work there. So she doesn't wear like what a lot of the other shop people wear. Okay, so maybe it's there not is an as, element of it, but it's but not it, as yeah. explicit as the Bill Phillips one and as and Rainbird in the original movie. It's not as explained as like you're gonna befriend this girl. It's kind of happens a little bit more organically than um, maliciously, even though it is still malicious intent, it's not as maliciously forward. Um, but all the same stuff happens as Chelsea described in her recap of where Andy, uh, who you think is being uh, turned into just sort of like almost like a human cow through medication. He's become so dumb and personalityless. But then we reveal that this is all part of a long con on his part. And he ends up pushing Cap to plan this big escape that goes wrong and turns into the big action extravaganza that Steve was waiting for in the Drew Barrymore movie. Uh, and in this would describe Dr. Rob's body after getting like pressed up against the ceiling. Uh, or no, wait, that's maybe in the Phillips. Dr. Dr. Rob's body erupts into a fireball and is sent flying like a missile high into the air where it explodes some 200 feet above the compound grounds. Um, Andy dies just like in the book. This also includes another, I feel for some reason everyone remembers from the books uh, and they do have in the Drew Barrymore movie is where she melts a bullet in midair that Rainbird shoots at her. Yeah. Uh, here, I don't, it's not Dr. Rob. I think just random people are shooting at her. And this ends yeah. where Norville Bates, one of the, uh, uh, the shop stooges is like the last man standing with the other kind of nameless commandos. And he like steps aside to let Charlie who's writing necromancer just leave because they realize that she's just going to keep killing everybody. And that's just the end of this initial draft. They don't have any of the stuff of her going to the press. We are going to pause the conversation right here and conclude it in part two of our conversation about the unmade version of John Carpenter's Firestarter. We'd like to thank our guests, Chelsea Stardust and Phil Nobile Jr. 
Um, you can find us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. We also recommend that you check out the Electric Now app to see video of our podcast and all the podcasts on the Electric Surge network. We'd like to thank everyone at Electric Surge, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.